meeting. Um, for the rest of you, was anyone here invited to the coronation yesterday? No? If, if you had received an invite in the post, would you have gone or would you have been it? I mean, whether you're a, a royalist or a, I can't remember the distinction you have or not a royalist, um, would you have gone? Yeah, I think I, I probably would have as well. You know, and beyond the, uh, the coronation itself, I'm sure there must have been a banquet that took place. And if you had been invited to that, would you go? I certainly would have. I mean, I'm not talking about the big lunch event that's happening today where people from communities gather with their own chairs and their own cushions and their own food and their own plastic cutlery. No, I'm, I'm talking about being sat at table with dignitaries and royalty, the crisp linens, the carefully placed, highly polished cutlery, goblets of the finest wine available, amazing, sumptuous foods, and attendants serving you. I would want to go to that, and I'm an American. What if you could not only attend these incredible festivities, but actually meet the king, speak with him one-on-one? Now, an invitation to know the king is one thing, but what if you were related to the king? How much more direct access would you have to the king? Not many of you may know this, not even Elijah, but I am related to the royal line um, here. My aunt, who lives in Texas, has done years and years of research and genealogy and ancestry research. But I need to tell you, I'm so far down the line of succession, I would have to be the last person alive on the planet to claim the throne. Today, it's fitting that we look at the idea of kingship in the Bible. But before we dive in, would you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, you are great and majestic, and we thank you that you are a God who speaks to his creation through your word. So by the power of your spirit, Lord, would you help us to see wonderful things in your word and be left more in awe of you when we leave today. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Well, the history of the kings in the Bible is really a fascinating one. And the first thing that we're going to look at this morning is a king rejected and a king enthroned. God is the king, but God's people demanded a human king instead. The story that we read this morning, this takes place after the Exodus. God has brought his people out of slavery in Egypt. He's brought them into the promised land, and he's set up for them after the death of Moses and Joshua, um, what are called judges. Now, these weren't permanent rulers over the people, but they were more like military leaders with, uh, who rose up to lead when they were needed. God would raise up judges when his people went astray or were in dangers, danger from enemies. And yet, each time after being rescued, the people would follow God for a little bit, but then return to their their wicked practices. In fact, Judges 21-25 tells us, in those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, the truth is, Israel did have a king. Yahweh God was their king. But they continually rejected him, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes, the scriptures say. Or in today's language, they may have been saying, I'm just living my truth. Well, what does that mean then for things like adultery and theft, for lying, for murder? When we become the ones who decide what's right and wrong, 
life tends to really fall apart quickly. When God's standards as truth are rejected, humans think they determine what is true. And so we read earlier that God raises up Samuel. This is at the period that's very close to the end of what's called the time of the judges. He was Israel's last judge and prophet. And he functioned as a priest and was a great man of faith. We read in 1 Samuel 8, 5, the people said to him, you are old and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord and the Lord told him, listen to all the people are saying to you, it is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his right. See, Israel here is is like a rude or petulant child demanding a king. God has provided so amazingly and miraculously for them ever since the time that he brought him out of the Exodus, and yet they're demanding something else of him that wasn't part of what he said he was going to do, bringing them into the promised land. The truth is that, that God has no problem raising up another prophet to replace the previous one after his death. So their words were really a polite way of saying, we reject God as our king and Samuel as our prophet. And Samuel knew it. Not only that, they were saying, we don't want to be a distinct people. We want to be a people just like every other nation. And what were the results? God told them, okay, if I give you a king, Basically, your children and you will live in a new form of slavery and bondage. Your sons will be pulled into military fights and may die in conflicts caused by the king, not things that I've called you to. Your daughters will be pulled into the king's servitude. A tenth of your land and crops and vineyards and livestock will be claimed by the king. Today, we would call that taxes. And you yourselves will become his slaves, his property. It's going to be so bad, God says, that one day you will cry out to me for relief and deliverance, just like you did in Egypt. But in that day, I won't listen. And yet we still read in verse 19, the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations, with a king to lead us and go out before us and fight our battles. When Samuel heard all that the people said, he repeated it before the Lord. The Lord answered, listen to them and give them a king. And not long after, Israel's first king, Saul, is anointed. And he ends up being a train wreck of a king. And after Saul comes David, who is of the tribe of Judah. He's anointed. And even though he's not an exemplary king, God says to David, your house and your kingdom shall endure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. God's promised Messiah is going to come through David's line. And even David recognizes this when he says, the Lord is the great God, the great king above all gods. And after David's reign, things keep getting worse. I don't know how well you'll be able to see this. This is a list of the different, uh, the 41 different kings 
in the history of Israel and Judah. Of these 41, only five were considered good kings, and that's being generous. Six of them were considered a mix of good and bad, and the rest were considered wicked kings. Yes, there are a few notable exceptions, but within two generations of the kingship being established, the nation is divided, each area claiming their own king. And the scriptures begin a refrain of this, the king did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And you hear that over and over. These kings brought into the nation of Israel occultism, child sacrifice, all sorts of idolatry and sexual immorality, pagan worship and bloodshed until finally the Lord sends the nation into captivity and exile. The history of Israel and Judah was characterized by their constant disobedience to God. Only a handful of these kings were faithful. And whenever a disobedient king rose to power, he led the whole nation away from God. He turned the people to idolatry. Jeremiah 52.3 says, It was because of the Lord's anger that all this happened to Jerusalem and Judah. And in the end, he thrust them from his presence. And the nation was captured and led away to exile under the rule of foreign kings. You know, it's, it's not until the New Testament that there is an officially recognized new king of the Jews. And his name was Herod. Herod was not of the line of David. In fact, if you look at, his, um, if you look at Herod's family line, he wasn't even fully Jewish. Herod was unexpectedly appointed as king of the Jews by the Roman Senate so that they would have a puppet in power that they can, could control. But you might be saying, like I did, what about God's promise to David? God said that David would have an heir who reigned forever. God's promise still stood, and he would make good on it with the final king who fulfilled his promise. And we'll get to that. But next I want us to look at Point number two, a king rejected, a king enthroned. Sounds similar, doesn't it, to the first point? Some kings of the earth, whether they're kings of Israel or kings of other nations, begin to view themselves as gods. Really, the first point that we looked at happens because we want to be king over our own lives. We want to do what is right in our eyes. And so we reject God's plan with corrupted hearts. We reject even earthly kings and their rules and enthrone ourselves like the Israelites. In effect, we say, we don't want to be a distinct people or follow your ways, God. We don't want to be, we don't want to live as Christians. We want to live like everybody else. And so we turn ourselves, or we think we turn ourselves into a king. But really, that's about as foolish as this. It would be like me taking this paper crown, putting it on, and saying, I am now the king of England. I mean, putting on this crown doesn't make me anything except maybe deluded. And just like the people and kings of Israel, because of our corrupt hearts, the testimony of the Bible says that we seek to enthrone ourselves. And life and the world descend into deluded chaos. We saw this in Romans 3 when we were in our Romans series, where in Romans 3 we read, All we like sheep have turned astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. 
in every area of life, including how we handle things like money or sex or drink or food, whether we show kindness and compassion, how much we value or devalue human life, all of these things have become tainted because we want to set the rules. We want to say what is right. And if you doubt that that's that's actually the case, just turn on the news. Just walk down the street and you'll see what a society of people saying, I will do what's right in my own eyes, causes. But point three, God offers hope in a king rejected, a king enthroned. Maybe you're seeing a bit of a pattern at this point. Into a world of chaos, descending more and more into chaos, God sends his promised king, the true king, Christ, Jesus. And this king brings with him an invitation. This Messiah, the rightful king from the line of David, from the tribe of Judah, has come. Do you remember what the gifts were that the Magi brought him when he was first born? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Myrrh to represent the sacrifice that would be made. Frankincense to show us that he would be a priest. And gold to recognize his kingly status. We see from his life that he is the humble king, the servant king, the king over all creation, the righteous and holy king, the compassionate king. And yet, he was rejected by the people of his day. This was foretold. It was one of the marks how people knew who the Messiah would be. Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53 tell us this, and it's confirmed in John 1, 11. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. We see throughout all four Gospels that though some people came to believe in him, most people rejected him. And he was finally betrayed and rejected. He was taken, tortured, beaten. And as they were rejecting him, they are shouting, give us Barabbas. And then he's crucified. Even in his torture, he was crowned with a crown of thorns to mock him as king. He died on the cross for us and for our sins. And what was the sign that was above his head? What did it say? in the three most prominent languages of the day, it read in a mocking tone, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. He died there and was buried. He is our atoning King and our crucified King, but He is also our risen and living King. He rose to be enthroned. Philippians 2 Chapter, uh, excuse me, chapter 2, verses 6 through 11, say of Jesus that even though he was in very nature God, he did not consider his status with, with God something to be desperately clung to. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
It's a fascinating passage because if, if we look back in the Old Testament in Isaiah chapter 45, God says, Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, my mouth has uttered in all integrity a word that will not be revoked. Before me, every knee will bow. Before me, every tongue will confess. We see that Christ is exalted as king over all things and recognize that he is also God come to us. Well, what does it mean for us to have Christ enthroned in our lives? We need to recognize that he is not just a good or moral teacher or example simply to follow, but he came to buy us forgiveness with his life by his blood to make for himself a holy people, a people set apart, distinct for his glory. We enthrone him by trusting and submitting to his word, by trusting and submitting to his ways. And yes, this, this changes and affects our attitudes and actions towards others. It changes our view and the way that we interact with things like money, drink, food, sex, the value of human life, all the things that I mentioned earlier. It affects what we choose to take in in terms of our entertainment. It affects how we choose to serve our brothers and sisters within the context of the church. Recognizing Christ as king also during difficult situations reminds us that we trust his word and not merely our feelings in the moment. And it also may mean stepping into difficult things that he asks of us, whether that's walking across the street to share your faith or uprooting and moving your family overseas. Enthroning and recognizing Christ as king means that we reject the idea of my truth and we live in the truth that he has given us. Jesus said to those who believed in him, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. In other words, he's saying, if you walk in the ways I've told you, you'll know the truth and you'll experience a freedom in this life like no other freedom. True freedom. See, the wonderful thing is he has given us an invitation. He invites us, the king of the universe who has been raised and is enthroned even now, invites us to come to him for forgiveness. And though that alone is massively, mercifully, graciously more than enough and more than we deserve, he gives us a new heart. And he invites us to even more. He invites us to a relationship with him where we can come to him, our God and King, at any moment without the need of an intervening priest or chancellor. We have direct access to God. He invites us to this brand new life in him. And his invitation includes a place at his victory banquet and the offer to reign with him. So finally, we'll look at the king exalted. Christ still is rejected today. We see it in government, we see it in academia, we see it in politics, in media, and in our everyday life. But ultimately, we will see him as exalted, as the reigning king, the returning king, the conquering king. The book of Revelation tells us of a time, and this is our great hope as Christians, 
when Jesus will literally, physically return to earth to set all things right and rule in person with perfect justice over all creation. We see this even prophesied in Psalm 2, where it says, Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord, against His anointed, His chosen, saying, Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. Yet the one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in His anger, terrifies them in His wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion my holy mountain. And Psalm 46 says, Nations rage, kingdoms topple, the earth melts, and he lifts his voice. The Lord of armies is with us. We're seeing this picture of the end of time when armies are are, uh, in conflict with one another. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Come, see the works of the Lord who brings devastation on the earth. He makes wars cease throughout the earth. He shatters bows and cuts spears to pieces. He sets wagons ablaze, and verse 10, which we often see translated, be still and know that I am God. And the original language means so much more than have a quiet, peaceful time alone with God. Literally, it is God saying, stop your warring and your fighting, your striving with one another, and know that I am God, exalted among the nations, exalted on the earth. The book of Revelation tells us that Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth. It tells us that he will return as a conquering king on a white horse, and he's described as wearing many crowns. And Revelation 19 says, On his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. See, Caesar may have ruled a great swath of the planet for a time, And King Charles was enthroned yesterday. And other rulers in history like Mao or Hitler or Napoleon, Stalin, Pharaoh, they all fancied themselves as supreme kings, supreme rulers. But Jesus is the eternal king. Empires and nations may appear to have power, but in fact, when Christ returns, all will submit to his rule. And... Revelation 5 and 2 Timothy 2 say that those who have believed and trusted in him as Savior King will reign with him in eternity. Isn't that amazing? Even the rewards that we receive from him, often called the crowns in the New Testament letters, are things that we will joyfully cast at Jesus' feet. So Christians of whatever nation you're originally from, we have but one true King, Jesus Yes, we live in biblical submission to the ruling authorities of our day, but always in submission to our true king, Jesus who has redeemed us to himself and who will return to reign in perfection. England's new king has been officially crowned and we rightly pray, God save the king. God prosper this king. God, let this king know you. Let him know the gospel and embrace you fully. All the while remembering the king of the entire universe is crowned and reigning. You and I may not have been invited to the coronation or the banquet yesterday, but he has invited you to meet him, to know him, to celebrate at his table. More than that, 
He has granted you the offer to be part of his family, to enjoy eternity with him under his perfect rule. What does that mean for us? It means that we'll have to get rid of our silly paper crowns. We'll have to climb down off the throne we think we've fashioned for ourselves, recognize that he is king, and turn in repentance and faith to him, and accept his invitation for forgiveness. Will you? Have you accepted his invitation for forgiveness? Do you know this king? Will you accept his invitation? Or will you reject him? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the great king over all things. And Lord, the kings of the earth are but at best mere shadows of what that means. Lord, thank you for this amazing invitation that you have given to us through Christ to be fully and completely forgiven of every single sin and to be seen as righteous in your eyes. We thank you, Jesus, that you will return, that our hope is not in vain, that you will return and we will see you in glory and we will see your perfect justice across the earth. Lord, for those here this morning who haven't yet accepted your invitation, please continue to speak to their hearts, reminding them of your great love for them. Lord, help us to all walk more closely with you, our God, our Savior, and the King of our hearts. We praise you and we thank you. In your name, Jesus. Amen. The Bible says he's a king of the Jews. He's a king of Israel. He's a king of righteousness. He's a king of the ages. He's a king of heaven. He's a king of glory. He's a king of kings. And he is the Lord of lords. Now that's my king. Do you know him? No means of measure can define his limitless love. Well, well, he's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's impurely powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. Well, he's the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's a fundamental doctrine of true theology. Do you know him? He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He heals the sick. He cleans the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captives. He defends the feet. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. He rewards the diligent and he beautifies the meek. Do you know him? My king is a key of knowledge. He's a wellspring of wisdom. He's a doorway of deliverance. He's a pathway of peace. He's a roadway of righteousness. He's a highway of holiness. He's a gateway of glory. Do you know him? His life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace 
is sufficient. His reign is righteous. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. Well, I wish I could describe him to you, but he, he's indescribable. He's indescribable. Yeah. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. You can't get him out of your mouth. You can't get him off of your hands. You can't outlive him and you can't live without him. Well, Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him, and the grave couldn't hold him. That's my king. Yeah! He always has been, and he always will be. I'm talking about he had no predecessor, and he'll have no successor. You can't him, beat him, and he's not going to resign. That's my king.